1 Corinthians 1-5. through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This week, we, we sent out a warning. We told parents, we said, this is what we're talking about, so think about that. And Alex Saru observed to me, he said, wow, there are a lot of kids here today. You know, I guess maybe they just wanted you to have the talk with the kids. That's why they came. I mean, that's why Karen brought Kevin today, so that I could explain things to him. All right, so I know the bulletin says that we're going through verse 16 today. I only made it through the first five verses. And for those who saw my plan when I first mapped out 1 Corinthians, I had the audacity to think I was going to handle all 40 verses of this chapter in one day. And here we are, we got five verses. But what a five verses they are. You know, I've been reading a lot about sex this week. And yeah, that was just as weird for me to say as for you to hear. You know, I have been reading a lot about sex. It's all been appropriate and accountable reading about sex done in service to our discussion today. But the fact is, it's easy to find material to read about sex because everyone in every part of our culture today is talking about sex, often except the church. Often except the church. In fact, in church, the real problem is that our discussions of sex usually don't go further than just say no. And that's the end of the discussion. But friends, there is some truth and applicability in that statement, but it hardly helps us understand God's design and intention for human sexuality, especially within the boundaries of marriage. And in this week's passage, Paul is continuing the discussion that we heard him start last week in 1 Corinthians 6 about sexuality. Now, remember, chapters 5 and 6, which we studied through, we heard Paul respond to and deal with different issues of sexuality that were happening in the church in Corinth. In chapter 5, he had to address the issue of a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And in chapter 6, persons in the church were having casual sex with prostitutes. And so, all of this activity had come to Paul's attention through a report that he received. You know, when we first started the study, you might remember, he mentioned he received a report in 1 Corinthians 1.11. He said, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. See, Paul had received this report from Chloe's people that there was quarreling, there was sexual immorality, there were other problems in the church in Corinth. And so his letter that we're studying was in part written in response to the report he'd received about what was happening in Corinth. However, at the same time, the church in Corinth, it seems, had also sent Paul a letter with some questions of their own. So what we find here in chapter 7 is Paul both continuing the discussion that he started on human sexuality, but also starting a new section where he's addressing questions and answers with the Apostle Paul. 
you might have noticed that Corinthians 7.1 opens and it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. They had written to him asking questions, and so he was going to respond to them. And we hear this phrase repeated again in chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 16. This whole letter is Paul's response. He's responding to the report he received about Corinth and the questions he received from them. Now, what makes this difficult for us as we study it is that we're hearing only one side of a conversation. We're only hearing Paul's side of a conversation with the church in Corinth. So we're left to piece together the letter and the questions that the Corinthians sent to him. We're left to piece that together from Paul's responses and from a whole series of quotes that Paul offers us. For example, 1 Corinthians 7.1 says, again, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul is either replying to a question from the Corinthians or a slogan of the Corinthians, one that they used and might have simply written in the letter to him. Now, what it seems was happening in the church in Corinth is that there was a reaction happening. As we heard last week, Corinth was a place of great hedonism. And so we seem that the pendulum was swinging to the other side, asceticism. Now, hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. Asceticism is self-discipline and the avoidance of all self-indulgence. So they're equal and opposite reactions, equal and opposite sides of the pendulum swing. Last week, we heard in chapter 6, verse 12, they were saying, all things are lawful for me. I can do what I want. And in this case, they were having sex with temple prostitutes and other things. And so now the pendulum swinging to the other side, well, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman at all. You know, those in Corinth were either advocating one extreme or the other, and Paul responds to this because these people were saying, well, you know, considering all of the rampant, out-of-control sexuality here, maybe we shouldn't have sex even in marriage. Now, in some ways, this mirrors the temperance movement that happened here in America in response to the rampant drunkenness and abuse of alcohol in that age, a reactionary movement arose and went to the opposite extreme. So instead of just saying, hey, use alcohol responsibly and avoid drunkenness, they went to the other extreme and they said, no, no alcohol at all. Completely abstain, completely do away with it. So what we find is the same thing happening here. We find a, a reactionary swing of some in the church, instead of just saying you should avoid sexual immorality and enjoy sex rightly within the boundaries of marriage, we have a movement that says, well, you should abstain completely from sexuality even within marriage. Now, this movement, like the American temperance movement, might have considered sex was just too dangerous or too tainted by stigma to even touch, and that's why it should be avoided. But more likely, there were some misguided ideas. More likely, the church had some misguided ideas about sexuality that maybe hang-ups from pagan worship or misunderstandings of proper worship. Either they had some hang-ups from pagan worship or misunderstandings of proper worship. Now, most of the believers in Corinth had come out of the religions that were prominent there in Corinth. And as I mentioned last week, right there in Corinth was the temple to Aphrodite. 
And the temple of Aphrodite is said to have had over a thousand temple prostitutes. Now, when we gather to worship, we sing songs, we offer prayers, we study the scripture. But in many of the pagan religions, worship took the form of sex with temple prostitutes, believing somehow that that sexual activity would stimulate the gods to move and to act on their behalf. And so, as such, for many of them coming out of that, the act of sex itself was an act of worship and would have brought back worries and memories. So, some of them might have been writing to Paul saying, hey, Paul, sex is how we used to worship these false gods. Now, if we engage in sexual activity, are we somehow pledging allegiance to those false gods again? And their question might have arisen, again, from those hang-ups from their days of pagan worship. Or they simply might have been misunderstanding proper worship. As we discussed last week, the Greco-Roman thinking that dominated at the time was a platonic dualism. The idea that the material is bad and the spiritual is good. The material is bad, the spiritual is good, and well, sex is very physical. It's very material. And so there might have been some dualistic thinking going on in the church, and they're saying, well, if you really want to be spiritual... You should, you know, be done with all this crass physicality and and sexuality and instead turn your attention to the the spiritual, to, to prayer instead of sex. But whatever the exact concern that this phrase came out of, Paul responds with a theology of sex within the boundaries of marriage. He says, no, no, this is how it's supposed to be. And he goes on to teach them, starting here in verse 2. He says, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Now, first, we've got to notice that there are some clear boundaries that are given here. One woman, one husband, one man, one wife. There's no room given here for marriage or any kind of polygamous relationship or a homosexual pairing. This, if Paul, if God intended for those things to be, this would have been the place to affirm it. And he doesn't. One man, one woman in marriage. This is what marriage is. These are the boundaries for sexual expression. And so we find that the boundaries are given, and then God's good design for marriage is again affirmed here as one man and one woman. As we said last week, the one man, one woman covenant of marriage is the only safe place for the expression of human sexuality. So Paul affirms that there's much temptation there in Corinth then, as there is in Camden today. There was much temptation to sexual immorality, and he says, well, you know, a good, healthy sex life where you're mutually enjoying one another cannot by itself protect you from immorality, but it can help curb the temptation towards immorality. So it's a good thing in that it helps you avoid some immorality and temptation. And he goes on in verse 3, he says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Her conjugal rights. How romantic. I mean, what are we, in prison? You know, the translation, this is the ESV, the translation in the NIV, the New International Version, is not much better. It says, the husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife. Now, we should cut the translators some slack here. Because they're trying to translate this Greek concisely and understandably and honestly, it's a little bit difficult. 
Because what's difficult is that the word that Paul uses here, he says, you should give to your wife, and then he uses a Greek verb, or a Greek word. And it's the same word that he uses in Romans 13, 7. He says, pay to all what is owed to them taxes, to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. What is owed? Paul actually says the husband should give to his wife what's owed to her. And likewise, the wife to her husband. And so what's owed to her? You know, as if that wasn't uncomfortable enough, Paul decides to get a little bit more uncomfortable with us in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, first, before we dive into this, we need to understand that this statement was earth-shattering. It was earth-shattering. Not the first part, but the second part. You see, the first part, the first sentence, no one in that culture would have blinked. When he said that the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does, they would not have blinked. But when he said that second part, The husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. That was like a record scratch moment. You know what I'm talking about in the sitcom when somebody says something outrageous and all of a sudden you're, and everything goes silent. Because that would have been shocking. That challenged the culture of the day. In that culture, the wife was expected to be absolutely faithful to her husband because the husband had authority over her body. However, it was common practice that husbands think, They had a little something on the side. The mistress, the temple prostitute, and the wife had no right to object to that. Until now. Paul says here in the marriage relationship, the wife's body belongs to the husband, and the husband's body belongs solely to his wife. There's an equality and a mutuality in this statement that would have shocked and challenged the culture of that day. In marriage, we belong equally to one another. And similarly, you might remember last week, Paul was talking about how we should honor God with our bodies and in our sexuality. And he concludes in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And Paul, in the same way here, he says, you are no longer your own. So what you do with your body is not just up to you. Your body is to serve the Lord. And in marriage, your body is not just your own. It is to serve your spouse. Paul goes on in verse 5 and he says, don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan might not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now now remember, some people in the Corinthian church had likely said, well, we should probably abandon sex for, you know, more spiritual pursuits like prayer. And Paul says, well, there is a time and a place for prayer. But it should be a mutual agreement of such times of abstinence. And his command is do not deprive one another. And again, Paul makes this awkward for us because of the word he uses. When he says, do not deprive one another, he uses a verb that we actually heard in the last chapter, in chapter 6. In chapter 6, you remember the first part of the chapter was talking about lawsuits between believers. 
And in chapter 6, verse 8, he says, But you yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Defraud. To deprive others of what they are due. So here in verse 7, he says, Do not defraud one another sexually. I mean, there is some really serious language used in this chapter in regards to the place and importance of married sexuality. So, what does it teach us? What does this teach us about the the place and importance of sexuality in marriage? Well, first, again, the place first the place of sexuality in marriage. What role does it play? This week, I found a very insightful article titled "What Sex Is For." I like self-explanatory articles. What sex is for, but I really like how the author summarized it. He said, fundamentally, sex does two things. First, it makes babies. Second, it produces physical pleasure and feelings of intimacy, which tend to forge a bond between partners. The Catholic Church prefers to describe them as the procreative and the unitive aspects of sex. Procreative and unitive. So what's sex for? It makes babies. It bonds persons. You know, sex is for procreation, it's making babies, it's for uniting, forging intimacy. So practically what that means for us is don't have sex with a person who you're not prepared to have children with. And then raise those children. Because that's the purpose of sex. And do not have sex with a person with whom you're not prepared to form a lasting emotional bond. Because these are the purposes of sex that God designed them to fulfill. And too many people today try to live in willful denial of both of these. I mean, have you ever heard the conversation, hey, yeah, I heard she's pregnant. Whoa, how did that happen? Seriously? How did that happen? Do I need to explain it to you? But the point is, we live so divorced from it, friends, we're like surprised it worked. That's the purpose of sex. The purpose of sex is procreative, and then we're surprised it worked. Or in the same way, have you ever heard people say, oh, I just don't understand why it hurts so much that I'm, I'm struggling to get over this relationship I had and move on. I mean, seriously? I mean, again, it's a denial of the fact that one of the purposes of sex is unitive. It unites us with that other person, and we're so surprised when it does. But those are the purposes of sex and consideration of the powerful procreative and unitive functions of sex. The only safe place to exercise sex in its fullness is in the safety of the covenant of marriage, because that is where both of those things happen or should happen. Procreation and uniting. Scripturally, scientifically, and statistically, A healthy marriage is the best place to produce and to raise children. And the lifelong covenant of marriage is the only place safe enough for the fullness of sex to be enjoyed. And what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7, you'll notice, is the unitive property of sex. He's not talking about procreation. Nowhere here is he talking about babies. What he's talking about here is the enjoyment and the unitive nature of sex. It brings us together. Church, what we learn from this passage is that sex is designed as an important part of the bonding that happens in a marriage relationship. So rather than seeing sex as unspiritual, as some in Corinth believed, sex in marriage is deeply spiritual. It's a tool. It's a tool to help us grow into unity with our spouse. It's a tool to help us serve one another. And it helps us in protecting us against sexual immorality. 
I mean, according to this passage, if one or more, both partners are expressing sexual frustration in your marriage and you're not actively working on it as a couple, then something's wrong. Something's wrong. Married couples working on your sex life so that it's mutually satisfying to both of you is not only enjoyable, it's honorable to God. Because this is God's intention for sex. God's given us sex as a good gift to unite us with one another, to strengthen those bonds, and to help protect us from temptation. And now, husbands, before you start elbowing your wives and going, Honey, did you hear what the preacher said? He said we should go home and have sex. You know what the Bible says, Don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. Best sermon ever. Yeah. Before you go off on application, friends, let's make some clarifications. The first clarification comes from the Bible commentator Warren Worsby. He wrote about this passage, and I love what he said. Sexual love is a beautiful tool to build with, not a weapon to fight with. Let me say that again. Sexual love is a beautiful tool to build with, not a weapon to fight with. Friends, just as sex is too beautiful and too powerful to play with outside of marriage, it's too beautiful and too powerful to fight with in marriage. In marriage, you need to learn to fight fair. You need to learn to resolve your conflicts. You need to learn to communicate clearly. However, with all of that, sex should never be a weapon to fight with, but a tool that together the two of you learn to build with. And church, I especially bring this up because this passage itself, with all of its strong language, has been weaponized. The fact that Paul used such strong language, you know, has led some people to say, hey, don't withhold what is owed me. You know, don't, don't deprive one another. And they weaponize these teachings. You owe it to me. I deserve sex. And even worse, some people have gone as far as to say, well, if you won't give it to me, then you can't blame me when I act out sexually. I mean, Paul twice here warns that sex within marriage is protective against temptation to sexual immorality. So it's really your fault that, you know, I was tempted and that I strayed. So let's address these fallacies. Okay? Before I do a quick disclaimer, in these comments, I'm addressing the average married sexual relationship. Friends, if your marriage has suffered an infidelity, whether through deception and pornography use, or through bodily, adulterous acting out with another person, the foundation of your trust has been shattered. And the process of rebuilding trust in your marriage means that the principles I'm going to be talking about, how you should apply them, how you should do it, you need to walk with those spiritual counselors who are wise and who love Christ and who can walk with you. And if you're here today in such a marriage, if you're here today in the middle of such a struggle, God brought you here today just to hear that there is hope. That there is hope for your marriage. There is hope for healing. Don't try to walk the road alone, though. I would love to talk to you after the service. I would love to point you to resources that can help you in your struggle. So again, I'm addressing the average marriage here. And Let's address these fallacies. The first fallacy, the first idea is you owe it to me. I deserve it. And friends, let me tell you, there's nothing less romantic and less loving than demanding sex. If you haven't figured that one out yet, there's nothing less loving than demanding sex. You've heard the phrase, you could win the battle and lose the war. I promise you, you can demand, you can cajole, you can manipulate your way to winning the battle and getting sex. But husbands, if you do that, you're going to lose the war for your wife's heart. 
or you're going to lose the war for your husband's heart. If your wife's body has become more important to you than your wife's heart, then something's gone awry. The truths in this passage of Scripture were not revealed so that we could use them for self-centered gain. Sexual love is a beautiful tool to build with. You know, the article, What Sex is For, that I referenced earlier, made another good observation in regard to this truth. It's possible to be faithfully married and still live a lie about what sex is. One way to do that is deny the unitive aspect of sex, using your spouse for physical pleasure, without considering whether he or she is enjoying it. Friends, if we're using one another, we're not uniting with them. Because they've become to us an object. We, sex is meant to be unitive. Sex is not about me. Sex is about we. Sex is meant to unite two people, not to use another person. It's good for you to want to enjoy sex, and it's healthy. It is healthy to express to your partner what you want sexually, but if your pursuit of what you want causes you to disregard your partner's wants, needs, and feelings, then that sex is not unitive. It's merely using and cheapening. So secondly, to the claim, according to this passage of Scripture, if you won't give me sex, then you can't blame me. You can't blame me for acting out. It's your fault. Friends, first of all, words like these are unloving and they're manipulative. They're sin. And if such words have passed from your lips, you need to repent. Scripture is clear. You are responsible for your own behavior. I warn guys who are about to get married, and I say, listen, if you've got a masturbation and pornography problem, you need to begin dealing with it now before you get married, because marriage does not magically make all sexual temptation go away. Understand, married sex is good. It can be so good. But no matter how good it is, it is no silver bullet. No matter how hot your wife is or how often you have sex, nothing's going to magically prevent sexual temptation. I've met with couples where the wife was attractive and she was so sexually available to her husband and he still struggled with pornography or acted out sexually. Scripture is clear. Healthy married sexuality helps us But it is no silver bullet. And you are still responsible for your own behavior. And to this end, one of the phrases I sometimes hear and I hate is the phrase that's used, I hear often in the Christian world, wives, you need to be your husband's heroine. In other words, wives, if you could just make yourself more available to him, if you could just do this for him sexually, if you could just walk this way, talk this way, dress this way, lose that weight, then he wouldn't be tempted to act out sexually on the internet or with other persons. So wives, you need to be his heroine, his drug of choice. You need to be so addicting that he's no longer tempted to sexual temptation. And friends, if you ever hear that, you need to know that's right from the liar and the deceiver Satan himself. He actually wrote that one. Friends, that idea is from the pit of hell. It puts a woman's, it puts a, the husband's sexual sin squarely on his wife's shoulders. She already struggles to feel beautiful and desirable and loved. And how much worse does it become when every sexual failure of her husband becomes her own failure? Wives, you can be free of that burden. Scripture is clear. You are not responsible for your husband's behavior or sexual acting out. There are times and there will be times during your married life, as many of you have experienced, when regardless of willingness, sex is near impossible or just plain difficult. 
Those weeks after childbirth, the sleepless nights of infancy, during a prolonged illness, during an extended trip, there is no justification to act out sexually. And more than that, even if an argument could be made that somehow your spouse is sinning against you by withholding sex, even their sinful action doesn't justify your sinful action. You cannot be justified in acting out sexually. This passage gives us neither license to sin, nor does it give us permission to use sex as a weapon. The passage makes clear that within the sexual relationship, the marriage relationship, sexual love is not a weapon, but it's something to build with. And so, friends, how will we build? How will we build? And I want to close with a thought from the book of Proverbs, which is a book full of wisdom given to us on many different situations in life, including our sexuality. How do we build so that sexual love is not a weapon, but a beautiful tool? And Proverbs chapter 5 gives us a beautiful statement. And i got to say, there's so much I wanted to say in this sermon. It makes me realize sometime we're going to have to come back and do a whole series because I can only fit so much in here. But Proverbs 5, starting in verse 15. Drink, uh, the, the author of Proverbs is speaking of sexuality as a refreshing, life-giving spring of water. A refreshing, life-giving spring of water. And this is what he says, Proverbs 5:15. Drink water from your own cistern, following, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Well, what do we find here in the wisdom of Proverbs? We find the same idea that Paul said. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, each man should have his own wife, each wife her own husband. We find here, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, and let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. There's an ownership in sexuality. There's an ownership. We belong to one another. But what I want you to see in this proverb statement is that while there's also this ownership, there's a beautiful delight in the sexuality. And I want to end this sermon on the idea of delight. Especially verse, six, verse 19. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. There's a great memory verse for you men that don't like to memorize Scripture. <laughs> Husbands and wives, work to delight in one another. Work to delight in one another because we live in a world of discontent. Everything in this world is trying to make you discontent. Media is trying to make you discontent. Marketing is trying to make you discontent. Men, pornography and other suggestive images, they're, they're going to twist your taste because they're going to make you discontent with the wife of your youth. Because the women in those pictures are not real. The women in those pictures don't even look like the women in those pictures. They've been photoshopped and airbrushed and digitally touched and smoothed and thinned and highlighted. Pornography will not encourage you to delight in the wife of your youth. It will simply create discontent. Husbands, actively seek to delight in your wife. If your wife is short, you are so into short. If your wife is tall, tall does it for you. If your wife's a brunette, you've always had a thing for brunettes. 
If your wife's put on 15 pounds since you got married, well, your tastes are changing. The point is, your wife is to be your standard of beauty. Hear that again. Your wife is to become to you the standard of beauty. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And some of you here going, Adam, but she's not my standard of beauty. And Scripture says, well, then you work on that. You work on that. You stop searching and gazing at other beauties that are making you discontent. And you intentionally search out your wife's beauty. And when you find it, you gaze on that beauty. And you praise that beauty. She is to become to you your standard of beauty. And you let her know that. And you celebrate her beauty privately and publicly. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And women, wives, in the same way, work to delight in your husband. He is to be your standard of manliness. Avoid those trashy romance novels and those romantic comedies because those men are not any more real than the women in pornography. No man can live up to the romantic exploits of those men. They're a fiction. And consuming things like that can twist and warp your taste and make you discontent with the husband of your youth. And if you're saying, Adam, my husband is not my standard, then work until he is. Search out the good in him. Gaze upon it. Praise the ways and the times that he does make you feel loved. Thank him for the ways that he does protect and provide. He is to become your standard and let him know that. Celebrate him privately and publicly. Now, friends, all of this is said not to say that there's no work that your husband should be doing, that there's no work your wife should be doing. There's room for all of us to keep doing our work and growing. The point is, and more than that, let me make abundantly clear, none of this is to say that you should accept and tolerate abusive or sinful behavior, words, or attitudes. I'm talking again about a generally healthy relationship. In fact, if this sermon has actually stirred up things, things in your own heart or in your relationship that you need to talk about, don't walk alone. I would love to talk to you after the service. I would love to give you resources. I would love to pray with you. Don't, don't walk these roads alone. So the point is that in a normal marriage, husbands, don't fixate on trying to change your wives. Wives, don't fixate on trying to change your husbands. Each one of you do your own work. And according to these passages, that work is the work of delight. The work that we want to do in marriage within our sexuality is delight. Work to delight your spouse. To give yourself freely and wholly to one another sexually and relationally. Working to grow that intimacy. And work to find delight in one another sexually and relationally. Let them become to you the standard of beauty. Be filled with delight. Intoxicated always in her and in him and in their love. Church, let our marriages be characterized by ever-increasing delight in one another. For church, in that way, through our marriages then, Christ might be glorified before a watching world. Let's pray. Uh, Father, help us because we hear the standards that you've called us to. The standards of delighting and of being delighted in. We hear what marriage is supposed to be and sexuality is supposed to be and we begin by confessing we've fallen far short. 
We can only be faithful by Your grace. We can only be forgiven by Your grace. We can only be reconciled and brought together and strengthened by Your grace. Father, may Your grace be evident and active in all of our marriages, all of our relationships, healing what is wounded, mending what is broken, reconciling what is estranged. And Father, take and make beautiful that which currently is not. Open our eyes to see the beauty in our spouses, to delight in them, that they might become to us ever more beautiful, and that, Father, we might work to see it as such. May we work not with our own strength, but with your grace active within us. And, Father, may you be honored. Honored in our sexuality, honored in our marriages, honored in our lives, so that the world might see not just us, And not just our marriages, but so this world might see Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us in closing, singing the blessing.